Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. And we're here now almost in June, so I'm still working on Ordinary Insanity. Hopefully, I'll be able to finish that soon, uh, and probably at least one graphic novel to share as Hoopla will issue new credits June 1st. I'm also working my way through several collections of short stories, so it is more than likely at least one of those will be discussed next episode, especially since I picked one for the Reading Soon section, which we'll get to eventually. I've also caught up on the Murderbot series and saw it recently reported that the author Martha Wells reached a deal with the publisher and she's going to write six books for them, uh, three of which will be Murderbot. So there'll be more coming in that series. And I read, was able to read a lot over the past two weeks. Uh, so just a few good books that didn't make it into the feature list are Becky Chambers, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, great space opera centered on a crew building the wormholes. So a kind of look behind what makes that science fiction world function or universe function. And the other one I wanted to spotlight ever so briefly is Daniel Evans' Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, her first collection of short stories exploring the non-white American experience. So it didn't, wasn't quite as uh, engaging as the Office of Historical Corrections, but both are good. Uh, if you like or you're interested in short stories that speak to the American experience, both of those would be good books to pick up and read. Our first featured book this episode is Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America by Alec McGillis, who is a white American journalist and author. He currently covers politics and government for ProPublica and has previously reported for The New Republic, The Washington Post, and The Baltimore Sun. In 2016, he was awarded the Robin Toner Prize for Excellence in Political Reporting, and in 2017, he received the Polk Award for National Reporting and the Elijah Parrish Lovejoy Award. In 2014, he published his first book, a biography of Mitch McConnell, titled The Cynic. I came across Fulfillment uh, as it was reviewed by the AV Club, and I think it was featured in uh, the Bookmarks Weekly Aggregation Review email that's sent out on Fridays that talk about the most reviewed or discussed books of nonfiction fiction published in America for that week. And Fulfillment is the story of regional inequality in America as revealed by the rise of Amazon and its distribution network. And overall, it is very informative, a uh, lot to consider and be distressed over, but overall I find I do have mixed feelings. Uh, McGillis blends personal stories, regional history, corporate history, and political machinations to tell the story of the rise and dominance of Amazon in our present day. And he does touch on the uh, coronavirus pandemic. So he was right, it's, this came out earlier this year, so I'm not sure exactly when he had to stop to have the final version sent for publishing, but he does discuss how the lockdown and a lot of people switching to just purchasing only online has just exacerbated many of the issues he speaks about in his book. But thinking of all those different parts he's discussing, he's devoting 340 pages to those, and that is 
a lot of content for that small uh, a print run. Uh, and particularly when he extends some of the regional histories often to the initial development or foundation of those towns. So we're going back, could be two to 300 years or more to talk about the rise of industries and failure and rebirth of those cities or not. And thinking of those personal stories, it did cause me to have some trouble with the continuity thinking, okay, here's this person he talked about in the introduction and then doesn't bring back for another hundred pages or so. So I had to go back, reacquaint myself with them and then go back to the section I'd made it to. And each of the chapters is linked by theme and one to three geographic uh, locations. So for example, chapter eight titled Isolation looks at Nelsonville, Ohio, York, Pennsylvania, and Columbus, Ohio. So again, goes through their regional histories, talks about some people living in those places, and then how Amazon has entered that location. And the big story here is Amazon, how it grew, expanded, uh, and the way it operates in a day-to-day level. So one of the things McGillis continually brings up and points out is that when Amazon is negotiating to build these fulfillment centers, the warehouses, the uh, data storage locations, they are working to get the best deal for them. And often that involves getting extensive tax breaks, which winds up being detrimental to the communities they locate themselves in, because by building these facilities, it creates a higher demand on the infrastructure. So the roads of the employees and the shipping arriving at these locations, the employees in the locations, if they need emergency services, uh, that again, Amazon is not really paying into those services. So that toll or usage falls back onto the people living nearby. And in general, uh, anyone keeping up with the news has seen that the way Amazon operates is not friendly to other businesses. Not that it necessarily has to, but to the point where Amazon is forcing other sellers to then sell through their marketplace and then looking at the most popular products, then creating their own cheaper knockoff version does not really come across well for them. As a librarian and person living on earth, I've grown more and more wary of Amazon over the years. Uh, I have lowered, like thinking of my, my personal spending now versus when I was a college student, like at that point I was probably buying was at least one thing a week. I've reduced my shopping through them and as much as possible try to do so through other sources. Uh, and I made a point to delete the app from my phone, the Amazon app. So hopefully I'll be able to lower my business with them. As this book highlights, it often seems for the history of consumption in the US, particularly when it comes to manufactured goods, there's the continual trend in the in, to make the production more and more invisible. So in early, uh, just thinking of the secret history of grocery stores that was read a few episodes ago, just how it talked about how much of that labor to get those products on the shelves is invisible. And it's much worse from an internet viewpoint, because we're not even seeing the arrival in the store anymore. We're just going online, looking at pictures online, clicking, and it arrives at the door, not necessarily considering how far the product has to travel, how frequent those orders 
are made that impacts the the number of vehicles on the road being able to deliver those, particularly with Amazon putting their one to two day shipping. So again, uh, maybe not the most clearly presented work, but something that does make its point and gives ample evidence of the the way that we are almost uh, back in the age of the industrial monopolies. It's just looking slightly different. Book two continues our wrestling with current America. So this is uh, a fictional work called The Sympathizer by, by Viet Thanh Nguyen, a Vietnamese-American author, professor of English, American studies, and ethnicity at the University of Southern California, and contributor to the New York Times. This book was his debut novel and was honored with numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the Carnegie Medal for Excellence and Fiction. So this author was featured back earlier this season too uh, in episode seven for the short story collection, The Refugees. Uh, and The Sympathizer is the story of an unnamed mixed-race South Vietnamese army captain narrating his escape from the collapse of Saigon in 1975 and his new life in America as a double agent for the Viet Cong. So this, uh, as that summary suggests, uh, centers around like the, the traditional spy novel narrative where it's one person working two sides trying not to get caught, but it also has elements of dark comedy and it is really focused on the larger legacy of the Vietnam War, both the actual events as they happened, as well as the political and even uh, popular perception of it, because a portion of the plot does involve the narrator uh, working on a movie with an auteur. So the, the narrative itself unfurls as a confession written by this captain, and I, I won't go too much into that, but that portion is revealed pretty early on. And the central, one of the many central themes is duality. So uh, as said from that description, the captain is mixed race. So it talks about the conflict between the backgrounds of his parents as he was raised uh, and that he's, he's stuck in that liminal space between two cultures where he's not accepted by his father's culture uh, and his mother's culture sees him as different to, to his mixed parentage. And then as you also see, uh, he, he is in the South Vietnamese army, but he is also an agent for the Viet Cong. So again, he's, he's in those two places. Uh, it would probably be an excellent uh, book club pick because there are lots of themes, uh, many lovely and well-expressed sentences. Uh, it's very, very well-written, uh, full of allusions or references to other works of literature as well. Uh, the paperback version I had had an interview with the author afterward which uh, I found very helpful. And through Goodreads, uh, he's also included some notes and other commentary about different sentences. So uh, uh, a, a very well thought out and expressed work that I think had a sequel released this year, which I will hope to read at some point. Our third book is A History of the World in 100 Objects. It is by Neil McGregor, a white British art historian and former museum director. From 1975 to 1981, he taught history of art and architecture at the University of Reading. He was the editor of the Burlington Magazine from 1981 to 87, when he became the director of the National Gallery in London from 
1987 to 2002 before shifting to become the director of the British Museum, where he was until retiring in 2015. He is currently the founding director of the Humboldt Forum in Berlin. And the Humboldt Forum, uh, opened digitally in December 2020, is a museum of non-European art combining the former Ethnological Museum of Berlin and the Museum of Asian Art, both, uh, again, in Berlin. So I first came across this book browsing new arrivals uh, in a used bookstore and picked it up. And as you get from the title, it is the history of humanity as told through selected items from the British Museum's collection. So like any book set up on that theme where you're arbitrarily picking 100 objects, there is some accepting of the premise and the limitations of it. But the nice thing about this one is the British Museum does have a phenomenal collection to draw upon and can cover a great span of humanity. So for all of these 100 objects, they were created by man, and each object gets at least one photo, given the dimensions and a, a good bit of the background. And McGregor also includes contributions from uh, experts or those with experience related to the object. And every five objects are centered around a set geographic, uh, sorry, a set uh, chronological time. And it is, does a nice job of being a truly global history. So we have objects from many different peoples, cultures, and regions of the world. But it does bring to mind the question of who has the right to own or display these objects. So the British Museum was located in the United Kingdom, which was formerly the colonial headquarters of the British Empire. So many of these items arrived at the museum as a process of the colonial expansion and control. So it does raise some questions about who has the right to own them or if they should be returned to their, their geographic region of origin. Uh, in reading this book, I read it out loud to my family, uh, three to five objects at a time. It's great to dip into and read a little bit. Uh, this, each object, again, is four to six pages, so very short sections. Uh, and it was also a podcast, so in looking when you read through it, if the descriptions are thoroughly detailed, which allows you to go back and forth between the image or get a good idea from it from the text. And it does include a bibliography that uh, references at least two sources minimum for each of those objects, which could certainly expand ones to read, pile, or list. Our fourth book takes us into some lighter territory. It's Don't Pigeonhole Me, Two Decades of the Mo Willem Sketchbook. So for those of you who don't have small children or haven't for the past decade or so, or been to a public library and seen the children's section, well, Willems is a white American writer, animator, and voice actor. He's well known for his children's book series, Elephant and Piggy and Pigeon, as well as Nufflebunny. His books, books have received the Theodore Ge Seuss Geisel Medal and Caldecott Honor, among many other. Uh, and this book was also introduced by the recently deceased Eric Carle, the children's author best known for The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Uh, we my family came across this book uh, as it was received by a family member for their birthday. And Don't Pigeonhole Me, as you can get from the title, is 20 volumes of Mo Willem's sketchbooks from the early 1990s to the late 2010s, shared here with brief introductions and recollections by Mo, as well as uh, a line or two from a different author talking about Mo's influence on them. So unlike 
what we typically think of when we think of a Mo Willems book. This one is aimed more at adults, as the many of these sketchbooks were originally intended to give to friends or family. Kind of like what we saw with You Can Never Find a Rickshaw, which was also featured back in Season 2, Episode 7. Surprisingly, the same episode as Viet Thanh Nguyen. What are the chances? But anyway, Don't Pigeonhole Me is a, a quick but fairly entertaining read. So it uh, has both single-panel comics, just some that are just art, others that are cohesive stories. So a lot, a lot of different ideas that Willems was playing with and experimenting with that you later see uh, developed in other works. So it, it does show a great example of the artistic process and that some artists do go back to their earlier works and find influence for present. So for example, uh, one of the sketchbooks was an early version of Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. And one of the, the most entertaining uh, was an intoxicatingly hard reader. Mo wrote a story featuring belligerent bunny called Olive Hugh Show Mutts, which said quickly, could sound like I love you show mutts. These are run counter to the easy reader that children learning to read uh, often go to to help them develop their vocabulary and their confidence. So this hard reader is one that you have to often read aloud to try and hear what, what the language should be. Uh, and it can maybe help one rediscover what it was like to learn to read the first time. And our final book of the episode is The World's War by David Ole Shuga, a black British historian, writer, broadcaster, and filmmaker. He's currently professor of public history at the University of Manchester. Much of his work revolves around military history, colonialism, slavery, and scientific racism. He has worked on series and films for BBC, including The World's War, Forgotten Soldiers of Empire, which is also the subject of this book. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where I first came across it, uh, either cited in another World War one book or saw it featured potentially in the BBC History magazine. Uh, it did come out in, I believe, 2014, so right around the centenary of the war. Uh, it's been on my to-read list since December 2014, so this has long been to-read and finally has been. Uh, and The World's War is a history of World War I focused on the multiracial and multi-ethnic forces that fought alongside the Allied powers that have been forgotten or largely erased from the popular historical record. So the majority of the content focused on the Western Front, but it does also take some time to discuss campaigning and fighting in Africa and the Middle East. So those are less the West, less popular and widely known fronts. So for Africa, uh, a lot of that was fought with colonial forces. And as it was over long stretches of territory, the African people were often forcibly hired or corralled to serve as uh, supply bearers to ensure that the white troops were supplied and had food to eat. So this caused lots of devastation in Africa and depopulation. And so far as the Middle East, uh, we saw those familiar in World War I know about the fighting in Gallipoli, as well as the campaign uh, in Mesopotamia, so going up the Tigris rivers toward and eventually uh, also conquering uh, the, the Allied forces conquering Jerusalem. Uh, 
And to do all this, Ole Shuga draws on diaries, letters, and other primary sources, including sometimes advertisements, uh, and argues and provides ample evidence of the global nature of the First World War and much of the contribution due to the popular ideas of race at the time was put these different non-European peoples to work in the labor and resupply. So it does talk about the uh, Chinese contingent who were brought over, uh, that their work was predominantly building fortifications, uh, some skilled labor in the tank works, but also that they uh, often found themselves forced to be the ones digging the grave, the graveyards, uh, especially after the war ended and they were not immediately allowed to return to their native country. So much of the work does focus then on the racism of the white Europeans and Americans in relation to the colonial or lesser soldiers. So like bringing up the US, uh, the, the African-American volunteers in the US Army uh, were largely kept from combat, except for the few forces that were given over to French command. So the Harlem Hellfighters being the most well-known example of this, uh, and they turned out to be wonderful troops that were highly decorated. But much of this is still sees the, the Europeans very much in the colonial mindset. So two books I'm looking forward to reading as we enter June. Uh, the first is Turtle Recall, The Discworld Companion, So Far, by Terry Pratchett, Stephen Briggs, with uh, cover art by Mark Simonetti. So the Discworld, as everyone knows, is a flat world balanced on the backs of four elephants, which in turn stand on the shell of the giant star turtle, the great Atuan, as it slowly swims through space. If you're looking for the ultimate authority on probably the most heavily populated, certainly the most hilarious, setting in fantasy literature, if you need a handy guide to Discworld locales from Ankh-Morpork to Zemphis, if you want help telling Ahmed the Mad from Jack Zweibelumen, if your life depends on being able to distinguish the Agaten Empire from the Zooms, look no further than Turtle Recall, the latest Discworld companion fully updated and completely up to snuff as in Snuff, book number 39 in the Discworld series. And the other Reading Soon book is one of the short story collections mentioned in the introduction, uh, and this one is Echo Tree, the collected short fiction of Henry Dumas, by Henry Dumas, John Keane, uh, and Eugene B. Redman. Afro, African futurism, gothic romance, ghost story, parabell, psychological thriller, inner space fiction. Henry Dumas' stories form a vivid, expansive portrait of Black life in America. Championed by Toni Morrison and Walter Mosley, Dumas' fabulous fiction is a masterful synthesis of myth and religion, culture and nature, mask and identity. From the Deep South to the simmering streets of Harlem, his characters embark on real, magical, and mythic quests. Humming with life, Dumas' stories create a collage of mid-century Black experience, interweaving religious metaphor African cosmologies, diasporic folklore, and America's history of slavery and systematic racism. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations 
or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.